0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Verterra Dinnerware. Learn more at verterra.com. That's V-E-R-T-E-R-R-A.com. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about how Gen Z is different from their millennial predecessors through the lens of food.
2: My knowledge of alcohol didn't really come from like Bud Light commercials or like Project X.
3: Yeah, and that's my gripe with the platform as well, is that all these DIY videos, cooking videos, they're 20 seconds.
2: What's one food item from
4: your childhood that you wish you could have today? Dunkaroos because they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Although the Dunkaroos Twitter was activated again a year ago, so it's only a matter of time. They've tweeted a couple times. It's pretty hype.
1: Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, August 12th, 2020. This is the 261st episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, we have a special episode from Host Summit Plus Social, our first all-day conference for and about our dynamic hospitality industry that took place on Monday, January 27th, 2020 at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn host, which stands for hospitality operations, services and technology featured top culinary and hospitality leaders who have all been past guests on this show. And they were featured in informative panel discussions, and one-on-one interviews, creating a forum for the exchange of ideas and innovation. Over 250 hospitality professionals joined us for our, our, full day of programming, which included networking opportunities with fabulous food and drinks. Our overall theme was all in, which carried throughout the day from my keynote address to our curated lunch conversations. Now, this show today is going to be longer than our usual ones, so you can stay tuned for that. It's going to include four of our different panel conversations from the conference's morning session. And then our next show is going to have all of the content from our afternoon session. So that's what's coming up. I realize now that a lot has changed in our industry and the world since we hosted Host due to COVID-19 and the tremendous impact that it has had on the restaurants that we all love and our entire hospitality space. And I've been covering it here on our show and talking with my guests for the past couple months. And uh, I know these conversations we've been having have been very important and they've shifted from from our conversations that we had at Host back in January um, as we're navigating through this current landscape. Uh, I do hope and I think you will still find the content that we have from from Host and the conversations that were had uh, to be inspiring and valuable in moving forward through this unprecedented time. And so um, I'm very glad that I can share what we did discuss with you today and with my show next week. Uh, So today's episode is going to feature the following topics and panelists. First off, the making of a deal, a real estate approach to hospitality. The panelists, Keith Durst, principal and founder of FOC, and he was my guest on episode 50. Grace Ann Jordan, Hospitality, Partnerships, and Investments, Millstein Companies, Episode 26, Jasmine Moy, Founder of Jasmine Moy Law PC, Episode 224, and this was moderated by Kathleen Squires, food and travel writer, columnist, The Wall Street Journal, co-producer, The James Beard, America's First Foodie, Episode 44. Following that, we have Restaurants and Risks, an Industry Perspective. The panelists, JJ Johnson, chef and founder of Field Trip, episode 130, Didier Elena, executive director of Food Quality and Culture of Hog Salt Hospitality, episode 53, Allison Arth, founder and principal of Salt and Roe, episode 209. And this was moderated by Jeff gordon Food and Drinks Editor of Esquire, Episodes 198 and 223. Following that, we have a panel entitled Changing Neighborhoods, Changing Needs, Brooklyn and Beyond. And this included Alice Chang, Founder and CEO of Culinary Agents, Episode 59, Sean Feeney, Co founder Grove House and owner of Lilia and Missy, episode 223. Brandon Hoy, co owner of Roberta's, episode 184. Moderated by Maria Elena Martinez, founder of Meets NYC and the co founder of New Worlder, episode 103. And then we close up this show with my talk with. Drew Niporent, and this was entitled Past, Present, and Future of Restaurants, Lessons from a Legendary Tour." And again, this was me, founder of Bayer Public Relations, host of this show, All in the Industry, and the producer of this show, and the founder of host Summit Plus Social. And I was speaking with, or I am speaking with, Drew Niporent, the founder of Myriad Restaurant Group, He was my guest on episode 176. So uh, I hope you enjoy what's to come, and um, thanks for listening. Here's host. Good morning. Good morning, attendees. Good morning. Welcome to
3: the inaugural host summit and social, bringing to life behind the scenes hospitality. And now... Please welcome to the stage your host, the founder of Bayer Public Relations and host and producer of all in the industry, Sherry Bayer. Well,
5: hello, welcome to Host Summit Plus Social. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we're coming to you live from the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. It is Monday, January 27th, 2020. This is our very first summit, inspired by my All in the Industry show on Heritage Radio Network, which launched in 2014 and now includes 239 episodes available in our archives, all dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today we are bringing my show to life in a live format with host, hospitality, operations, services, and technology. In a moment, we will introduce our first panel, followed by more industry discussions, one-on-one conversations, and our special lunches and closing reception. But first, as I do at every summit starting today, I am going to tip off host with my PR tip of the day. So today's tip is to have gratitude. And not only have gratitude, but express it often and with sincerity and volume. Let people know what you think about their efforts and how much you value them as friends, colleagues, employers, employees, vendors, family, and more. Know that we can never say thank you enough or tell one another how much we appreciate them. There could be no such overuse of the words thank you. I say impossible. So be humble and always give credit where credit is due, as appreciation is not just a tip, it's a way of life. That's my tip today. Now on that note, I would like to express my sincere gratitude to so many people who have helped make today go from a vision to a reality. First, all of you for being here, believing in host and what we're doing. Without you, there's no reason to be on a stage or buy a fun on air sign and be the host. So thank you all. Next, my team, thank you all from the bottom of my heart. This soloist needed you and greatly appreciates you beyond words. Thanks to our incredible speakers, all 25 of them who are past guests on my show and true leaders in our industry. I'm so grateful for your participation and can't wait to hear you speak today. To our wonderful partners who came on board to support us our first year, we are very grateful. Thanks to our host venue, The William Vale, our media partner, partner Heritage Radio Network, Balzer Sales Company, Cuisinart, Open Table, and Woodford Reserve. To our breakfast partners for kicking off today's delicious morning, Bread's Bakery, Ora King Salmon, Dew's Donuts and Coffee, Aficionado Coffee Roasters, San Pellegrino, and Aquapana. Now there's more things to come, more people, more people made today happen, but let's get on with this show. Without further ado, let's go all in with host 2020.
6: Keith wanted to do like a Blues Brothers style entrance, but I haven't done a back handspring in a long time. so I said we'll Ronnie just... would do it for her, though. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you so much, Shari, for organizing this amazing conference. Um, I am very excited about this uh, panel, the making of a deal, because I really... Know nothing about making deals, and I'm with three people who know everything about successful restaurant partnerships. Um, Keith Durst is the founder of FOC, which stands for Friend of Chef. Mm -hmm. He's the uh, founder and principal of it. He curates hospitality concepts um, all over the world, and uh, he marries real estate, hospitality, um, and Yeah, everything necessary for a successful partnership. One thing that you don't know about Keith is that he's also a great neighbor. (laughs) Uh, Grace Ann Jordan. Grace Ann uh, combines uh, years of management expertise. She's worked with every big name in the business. Tom Colicchio, jean George von Gristin, Union Square Hospitality Group, and... um, she. with One thing that you might not know about Grace is that she also has a background in psychology, which comes in really handy uh, for management. And then Jasmine Moy uh, is an attorney, and she specializes in putting together food and beverage um, negotiations. And she is also a wonderful author and writer. So thank you guys all for being here. First, why don't we start with you all telling us what it is ex- that you do? What is your role in, t- in making of a, a restaurant deal? Um, we'll start with Keith. What has to happen for someone to say, get me Keith Durst?
7: Okay, Ronnie. Um, so what, what we do at FOC and what our team does is we tend to work mostly with developers, real estate developers, and great restaurant groups, um, mostly here in New York as far as the restaurant groups are based, but now all over the country and, and some parts of Europe as well. And what we really do is we have the ability to help developers make their their real estate more valuable through the use of hospitality, experiential retail, different sources of ways of making changes that people can say, okay, I have a space. I have 10, 15, 20,000 square feet of retail space or ground floor space or basement space in a building that's 600,000 square feet or a million square feet. And we're gonna use that 10 or 20,000 square feet of space to make the million square feet more valuable. And that's really what my group does.
6: Grace Ann.
8: Hi, good morning. Um, where I come in is probably the other side of Keith is I work more with uh, operators and chefs. Um, a lot of people that I've worked with in my uh, time in operations and try to put together relationships that um, I feel will, will work really well um, based on vision and, um, you know, how people kind of have moved through their career. Um, I also work with um, a real estate and banking family here in New York, um, helping them uh, curate these experiences in their buildings where we're building amenities and looking for uh, chefs and, um, you know, third-party businesses that can come in and make, much like what Keith said, uh, the real estate more valuable um,
9: for per square footage. And Jasmine. Uh, very similar to, to Keith and Grace Ann. You know, essentially, once the, the partnership is found or once the developers and the operators have found each other, um, all of that needs to be papered in a way that makes sense and that protects everybody um, in, in the ways that matter. So all of my work is in just documenting and making sure that all the contracts are, are buttoned up the way that they should be to set everyone up for success.
6: So now that you've told me what you officially do, um, why don't uh, you tell me what you do that people don't realize that you do? What do you do kind of behind the scenes that nobody even realizes? Grace-Ann, we'll start with you. You mentioned some interesting things to me uh, last night about, you know, I said I didn't really know that was in your job description.
8: Yeah, I think having a hospitality approach um, to these uh, real estate projects is really important. I find and Keith will tell you um, as well that people are figuring out that um, we want to feel good in the in the spaces we we're in, and the experiences are so important. And we're starting to think about everything from, you know, walking into this room um, how does it feel for someone to get into the center row uh, when you have nine chairs across? Um, how does it feel to walk into a building and have to have? your driver's license out and um, sign in with security, how do we take those pain points and make them uh, more comfortable for entering the building? And um, in these real estate projects, you want people to feel like, you know, the whole hubbub of getting through New York, that once they get to their destination, that it's a bit of an oasis. They have maybe a nice aroma, they're hearing great music, and they just feel like they've arrived at a place that they can feel comfortable. And that's from everything of, you know, not to disparage uh, security guards, but when you see the man in the suit with the clipboard and the pen, um, it'd be so much more of a better experience if that person was perhaps wearing their own clothes or um, smiling and asking how your day was, um, offering some help of where your destination uh, may be that you're going um, and kind of engaging, you know, each time you come into the building, so we're you know looking at how many steps it takes you to come into the building, what it feels like to pull out your phone and use a QR code to enter instead of you know having kind of sign up on a clipboard. Um, how does it feel to go through a turnstile? How fast are the elevators? All these things that are going to make you successful in your visit for the day.
6: Jasmine, what is not in your job description that you often find yourself doing?
9: Um, I think generally speaking, and maybe I would be better off with a background like Gray Sands, but I think these, you know, it's emotional. It's emotional to get into these deals. It's emotional um, to have these conversations. Uh, you know, all the parties are putting a lot at risk in terms of time and money. And, um, you know, people are getting cold feet. People are stressed out about X, Y, or Z. You know, so there's there's a... A lot of you know, me either saying this actually doesn't feel good and I'm not sure that this is right for you or how do you feel? So a, a lot of sort of counseling folks about whether a very specific deal is, is the right one for them at this you know, moment in, in their career. Uh, so yeah, a, a little counseling, I guess. That's where the psychology comes in. Yes, exactly, and Keith?
7: So I think what most people don't realize is we do a lot of things from ground up, from day one up before things are even happening where we're actually helping people lay spaces out, block patterns out, um, do all the financials, all the modeling, and then actually doing it from a development side, but then also having to jump around and do it from an operator side where they haven't really had experience working with bigger developers. They're used to working on one-off restaurants with small groups and things. They don't really understand the mechanics of working with a large company that has a whole host of departments and interdepartmental meetings and everything happening. So we really have to usher them through all that and then while we're doing that, also keep things moving in somewhat of an organized fashion um, and then really do a ton of matchmaking with with different groups that we really like working with. So for us, it's a matter of knowing and understanding the groups that we like working with and hope that the developers and restaurateurs wanna work with them too. We know their systems and we try to get people um, to kind of play along and, and really try to usher it through together and that's where that's where all this stuff becomes so important, the agreements that are being drawn and we're doing multiple pro formas and multiple models, one for an agreement, one for the bank, one to live by. And as you're doing all these things, like knowing that half of what gets into this agreement, at some point you just have to have people that are just willing to take some step of, some leap of faith and say, okay, we can, we believe in who we're working with. So um, I heard it's uh, one time. And, and I think it's a motto of our company that you can't do a good deal with bad people and you can't do a bad deal with good people. And I think for us, we really spend a lot of time making sure that people we're working with are people we want to spend the next couple of years with.
6: So in keeping with the theme of today, um, what does the ultimate deal look like to each of you? What, what does it take for you to say, I'm all in? And we'll start with you, Jasmine.
9: Well, I'm in a slightly different position because I'm, you know, a, a I'm the help, uh, so, um, you know, it, it. if they're all in, I will be all in because they're paying me to be all in and, um, you, know, to, you know, to the extent that there's a part of this that that um, isn't exactly right, you know, it's me doing my best to communicate why, you know, toggling this this way or Adjusting this thing this way is actually better for both parties, um, especially, you know, Keith was talking in the hotel space in particular, you've got uh, the building owner, you've got the hotel manager, you maybe have a brand involved, if the property, um, if there are mortgages on the property, you've got the bank involved, then you've got the food and beverage manager involved. So it's, you know, there's there's six or seven people in the same sandbox. and just you know, making sure that everything is calibrated in a way that makes sense and reduces friction. And you know, although Keith said you're gonna, you can try to anticipate every single thing that might go wrong um, in, in any single kind of deal, you know, the, the addressing that as a 4,000 page document, that's not what they look like. So you do have to be able to work with people, be flexible and things like that as well, you know, once a contract is signed.
6: Keith, what does it take for you to say I'm all in?
7: Well, I think for us, it's, it's a project that my team has to love everything we do. Because there's so much time and energy that's put into it, so we all have to kind of sit down as a team and get organized and look at it, and everyone has to get excited about it. And then we have to say as a team that we're willing to reinvest our fees and different things into, into that project. And if I look around and the team's not willing to do that, then I know it's not a project we should take. Um, and, and we're kind of, what, what I've learned... and. Jasmine probably won't like this very much is, you know, we get these contracts for consulting contracts put in front of us all the time and, and, and Grace sand probably too. And I don't want to sign them. Like they don't protect us at all. So for me, I could, you know, I could spend three months negotiating this and go through all this stuff. And then if one of my development partners that we're working with, if they don't want to pay us or they don't want us around anymore, what am I going to do? So for us, like we do our best to make sure that we believe in the people we're working with, and we try to spend a month or so getting to know them a little bit before we actually even sign a deal with them because then we're locked in. So um, we really have to kind of decide as a team, and then the whole group of us has to get excited about it because it's just not one person. We all do different things, and, and everyone really has an important role in what we do, and, and they have to get excited. And they have to want to work with those people, and if they don't, then we just can't do it.
6: Grace Ann?
8: I feel like I'm the... Um passionate person on this topic um, and these two have to kind of keep me going towards the the goal because I'm the one that is you know with the the chef is really excited about the food they're cooking or they fall in love with a a space Um, and then Jasmine saying it's not realistic or Keith is saying that that real estate deal isn't the right one Um, so for me to be all in it's it's more about uh, the relationships and it's interesting, it's such a common uh, thread that we've all been talking about is how important the people part of this is and the relationships with um, you know, not just um, the chef but the person that they are you know, putting their trust in to operate and to partner with them and the landlord relationship and what their plans are for the future and when all those things align and you know um, the the principles decide that this is the right thing, you just it's just something intuitive that you just know. And um, I'm a forever a tree leader when all those things uh, you know come together and, and that's when I'm all in.
6: Uh, And you've spoken a lot about the people and relationships, but um, what about location, especially in a city like New York? How important is location, Keith?
7: Well, we think location is one of the, and it's the old real estate adage, but it's so important. Um, And it's not just location. Rent and the construction of the rent deal is really what's critically important these days. When we're working with a developer, we have to explain to them, what the capabilities of the tenant and the restaurant group are that we're also trying to help and put in the right space, how much they really can. And we're trying to curate almost all these things as a percentage of sales based on the caliber and the quality of the restaurant or quick serve restaurant or fine dining restaurant. And we try to come up with percentages and then we try to mark them back up. And now we're really working off of lower base rents and not really thinking about things in terms of square footage and all that goes with the right location can fix so many of these little issues as they come. Um, And we're fortunate to work in some amazing locations around the city and around the country where we know the foot traffic and the people are there. And then that kind of allows us to have that base of knowing things are gonna be great from the begin with. But then we've also worked with, and and I know some of the people and they're capable of bringing the traffic. And so for us, it's two different ways to look at it. And when someone's sitting on the best piece of real estate, We're going to make a deal one way with that, with that operator, with that group. And when someone's sitting on not the best piece of real estate, it really gives um, our operators a leg up to really negotiate even a better deal.
6: So, um, Grace Ann, then, um, in terms of location, as Keith said, I think it's pretty interesting. Is there a, I mean, if you're, if you don't have the best location in the world, what are some of the things that you do to draw people there? How do you make a location a destination?
8: I actually, it's funny, I just thought of this. I feel like that terminology destination restaurant is just a big red flag because there is so much that you have to bring um, and it becomes a a special occasion place. Um, But I think having a restaurant that's for everyone and um, I don't know why in my career this has happened, it's just kind of the way it went but whether I was at Gramercy Tavern, there was a tavern that was walk-in and there was a dining room that was reservations. And then I moved on to Jean george where there was the Nougatine, which is, you know, more casual and then the fine dining in the back. And then I went to the Modern, which had the barroom in the front and the dining room in the back, same thing, lighter and and, um, more accessible and I just felt like those models, whether I gravitated those or not, it was it was more because you could welcome everyone. So, when your you know um, crazy cousin who has never been to New York before doesn't want to sit in a fine dining restaurant and have a three-hour experience, they felt much more comfortable coming to the front of the restaurant and having something more approachable food. So I think you know. These days, I can't tell you the last time that I made a reservation more than two days in advance. I never know what I'm doing. I think that um, having something where there's the ability for a walk-in, there's the ability to do all the things, from you know everything from a private experience um, to just a, a drop-in, is the most successful, no matter where it is.
6: Grace-Ann mentioned red flags and um, Jasmine what are some of the red flags that you come across that you say this deal is just not going to work?
9: Yeah, I, th- I think maybe a little unlike Keith and Grace Ann, I'm I really truly began agnostic a- about the space, you know, to the extent a client sees something and says I really feel, I felt something when I walked in, I, I think this is a space for me, or, you know, especially I've got a lot of clients who, you know, live in maybe underdeveloped parts of Brooklyn and are looking to do things there where maybe they would be one of the more, you know, the first you know, recognizable or the first, you know, Michelin-rated restaurant maybe in that entire neighborhood. Um, What I care about is more, oh, you know, when I look at the Department of Buildings website, are there a dozen open violations? If you're in the West Village, do you have a landmarked facade? Um, Has it been built to code? How annoying is that gonna be to fix? Because what I need to do is protect my client um, for all of the work they need to do. I need to give them enough time to do the work they need to do. Um, you need to give the landlord enough time to do what they need to do, but, like, not too much. Um, You need the right to terminate if the landlord is taking too long to fix the things they need to fix. You know, it's, it's, it's an endless sort of parade of uh, imagining the worst case scenario. So, you know, I, I don't really care where it is. I, m- I mostly care about the, the facts of what exists in this building, what the certificate of occupancy looks like in this building. Um, and to the extent that that is you know, causing a lot of problems, um, you know, that's where I'll step in. But, you know, I, I never give up any opinions about, you know, neighborhood or foot traffic. It's just not, you know, it's not really my job. I don't know anything about demographics, you know, that's above my pay grade essentially. So,
6: Uh, Keith, what are some of the biggest red flags that you come across when a a deal just won't work?
7: Well, I mean, almost every time, it's just knowing what the pro forma is supposed to be and how it's going to look and try to understand what the financials of that situation are going to look like. And then, really, it starts to get into when we're dealing with groups that just aren't familiar with doing some of the development here in Manhattan or different challenges that are with it and just seeing the spending just start to tick and just start going and people just losing complete track of that and with a single goal of just whatever it takes to get them open at that point and then we know from there that the wheels come off the wagon, it's really so hard to get them to go back on. So for us, it's really trying to like stop that from happening but um, people get so emotional in these things and 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 when you're working with individual restaurateurs um even more there's just this lack there there's there's a lack of sense that gets put into some of these things and we understand that and we try to like prevent that from happening um we try to put systems in place that'll that'll prevent that from happening but it doesn't always work that way um and then what from there we try to try to get things righted and it's hard you you start going down that road and it gets a little tricky so we try to like anticipate most of these things from the beginning we have one person on our team that says quite frequently that this is not sustainable. And, uh, and as a result, we make sure that he's around for those, uh, for those tough, tough, tough conversations. Right, Andrew?
6: <laughs> uh, Grace Ann, what other red flags have you come across in your deal- deal-making?
8: Oh, interesting. Um, well, I think, you know, there's never a perfect deal. There's always something, and I think it's minimizing Um, what those red flags are Um, you know it's interesting how deals are put together now I remember looking at contracts in my career and you had to maintain your Zagat review level of you know food had to be 25 or higher or you had to um, maintain three stars in the New York Times or um, you had to be in the top 50 Zagat or something like that um, and the measurables, um, you know, aren't there like they used to be. It's it's really about dollars and cents. And um, with, you know, the marketing being so different with social media, um, you know, people really want to have uh, followers and, um, you know, kind of create a huge social media presence. Um, And I'd love to, if anybody can figure out how you get an ROI on that, uh, it would be great to know. But um, I think going in with um, a brand that isn't um, well-known and not having that kind of backing of, um, you know, a social presence or or the dollars for PR and marketing is sometimes a a red flag. I think I was talking to somebody um, this morning about how, um, you know, you go so far into the project and then they realize that they need you know branding or they need these kind of what they saw as extras and realizing that for them to be successful they really have to have these items and just not kind of a red flag of not understanding really what the full scope of uh investment
6: is interesting um so i would love for each of you to give me an example of a partnership that wins and why so why don't we start with you jasmine
9: um, you know, I think, I think having common goals um, is the most important part. You know, I definitely have clients who are sort of, they're chefy. you know, they, they do television work, they're, they're artists, and I think partnering with people who are very dollars and cents sort of without regard to that making art is expensive and that making art is maybe not maximizing your profits. Um, I think that's important. You know, I have a client who also pays, you know, is very proud of themselves for paying all of their staff a living wage. But you know what that does is it also, like, lessens what their profit looks like. And being clear with ownership in, in this deal that that's what it's gonna look like. You know, this this is a part of their branding, it's a part of their identity, is that they spend this money in this way and having people agree, you know, we want you to pay people a living wage, we support this, we are behind this, we do this as well, Um, I think, uh, not having that, of course, then creates conflict later. You know, they're open six months. They're, oh, you know, you, you, uh, profit should be around 18%. Why are they only at 11? Um, you know, everybody's fussy about it. So, so I think just, you know, being very transparent, um, having all of the communications the same way Keith has communications with clients before they agree to engage with them, um, making sure that all of those priorities uh, financially and, and even on a non-financial basis are in alignment. Um, but it's you know it's hard to do it's hard to find the right partner so
6: Keith, give me an example of a partnership that wins
7: so I'd say um, there's there's two aspects of what we do so first, we have to remember we're consultants, so we walk into a room and we ask our client what it is that what their goals are so as long as we can meet our client's expectation that's a partnership that wins so If it's getting the right person in that's gonna end up taking over a whole lobby of an office building and having that person having aligned goals with the developer, that's a real win for us and it's a win for the developer and everybody works together and it's really, we start every meeting and every engagement that we have with with trying to find out what the goal of the developer, what the goal of the restaurateur is that we're working with and that's really what makes it a victory for us. If we're working with a restaurateur, that's a different story. Um, And we have the pleasure to work with Wiley Dufresne on what he's doing and the things that he does and what makes that such a great partnership for us and why our whole team gets excited about working with somebody like Wiley is that he's got his art and his craft and what he does and Wiley looks to get help and work with us on other things and parts of businesses that he doesn't do and he works with us and works toward that and we know where to stay away from when it comes to Wiley. um, I remember he gave my wife his cookbook and then my daughter said, look, mommy, now you can cook like Chef Wiley. Um, But... We know we can, so we stay away from that stuff. Right.
6: Grace Ann, example of a partnership that wins.
8: I think um, for me, the easiest partnerships that win are ones that the uh, importance is actually not on the hospitality space or the restaurant. It's more on, um, you know, for I don't know how many years ago now, but um, big car companies like Lexus or Um, you know, large banks have decided that partnering with hospitality is a good idea. And um, I think those are the easiest partnerships because it's not about the profitability of the food and beverage outlet. It's about the brand awareness and partnering with um, a great chef or or a great uh, restaurateur. So to me, those are the easiest ones. I am very fortunate that I'm in a situation where, Real estate is the most important part um, and the, you know, the amenities are just that. So they just want to uh, create a community and have uh, people want to be in the building, want to be together, um, so the the microscope is out more on the leasing and the price per square foot and not of anything other than let's just break even. So to me those are the, the best partnerships.
6: What's important too is um, we're all in the same in- industry, having to do with hospitality. So, um, even though a lot of what you do is, is business-oriented, um, I'm interested to know in how you inject hospitality into what you do. Keith, how do you, how are you hospitable?
8: <laughs> I can't, I can't well, wait for this answer.
7: So I'm very fortunate that I have a group of a dozen people that all come from really great hospitality backgrounds. So we joke about it a lot, but they come from the best restaurant groups and they've worked on and worked with the best restaurant people. And, um, and I, have a, a, I have really great friendships with the people that work at these places and we've spent a lot of time kind of trying to take the culture from those hospitality groups that they worked with and kind of inject it into what we do. Um, We try our best to spend time together outside of work and even take a trip together and kind of like try to get our families to like understand what it is we do and and be accepting of the fact that one of us has to work, you know, 100 hours this week to get things done because we have deadlines and things. And I think it's really important that the families kind of understand and that everybody kind of works together as a group and really spends a lot of time getting to know each other and also really understanding that taking people from great groups um, and that have left those great groups and really understood really good culture in their hospitality groups and we kind of try to we try to really embrace that and kind of really bring that into our group.
6: Grace Ann? That was great. <laughs> <laughs> I still seek her Bravo. approval. I don't know why. <laughs>
8: <laughs> you're you're very hospitable. You really are. You always you don't need a team, you are. Um, I think when I'm in a meeting um, that I'm being introduced to an architect or, um, you know, a, a liquor lawyer, attorney, whoever it is, you know, we always just jump right into the subject. We always jump into, all right, what can you do for me? How much is it going to cost? And it's try it. It's really interesting. People get really taken aback where I just start the meeting by saying, well, tell me about yourself, and they start talking about what they do. No, 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 no. like, where did you grow up? Where, you know, what did you do? Did you go to school? Um, how did you get to where you are and it really puts people at ease um, and that I'm not just investing in the fact that they can do this skill for me or, or this service, but that I want to work with people that, that I understand and know um, on a more personal level.
6: Jasmine, how do you make being an attorney hospitable? <laughs>
9: <laughs> um, yeah. I am, you know, I, I actually think that, you know, the, the part of me and I've waited tables like my entire life, you know, I'm I'm really a service industry person. I come from the service industry. Um, I think the way that that's reflected, and I don't want to say not necessarily with, with my clients, you know, I feel like I try to be approachable and accessible with my clients. I try to make these confounding documents um, less confounding. I really want to make sure they understand it in a way that's practical, but I, I do think um, really, where the hospitality comes in is when I'm working with opposing counsel, when I'm working with somebody else's, you know, lawyer, when I'm working with the opposite partner, you know, side of this deal. Um, I am truly, and especially when it comes to lease negotiations, you, I think you, I always get what I want by being kinder, by being nicer, by appealing to reason. Um, you know, I don't play the tough, tough, you know, person. You know, mean, whatever, whatever. I'm also. Five feet tall. Like there's only so much intimidation that I can convey to any single person. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, I, you know, much of my hospitality background comes into to trying to get what I want from people in a way that is, you know, not coming, you know, that, that is honest and respectful and kind.
6: So important in everything that we do. And as someone who was given the title of chief snack officer, uh, my husband's business, I can relate that. Being hospitable is very important no matter what you're doing. Great. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Graceanne. Thank you, Jasmine. And thank you all for being here.
10: Thank you. Well, hello. Good to see you. They've started the clock, so we're going to just start talking. Hi. I'm Jeff Gordonier. I'm the Food and Drinks editor of Esquire magazine. These are our panelists, Allison, JJ, and Didier. Um, We're gonna just get straight to the talk, so if you wanna learn more about them, just Google it to save time. (laughs) I wanna start by asking, this whole talk is about risk, Uh, and I wanted to start by asking, what's the biggest professional risk You've ever taken, JJ?
11: Hey, how's everyone doing today? My um, oh man, I, I live for the risk. R- risk and risk. It's all.
10: It's all risk with you.
11: Yeah, I mean, uh, big risk equals big reward. Um, and I think every. I think everything I've done in my career has been a, has been a risk. Uh, even as I look forward right now, I'm probably going to take a big risk, but. You know, working with Alexander Smalls was a risk and doing the first Afro-Asian-American restaurant when there was nobody ever cooking that food in, in America before.
10: That was the Cecil, the Cecil in yeah. Harlem, which was Esquire's number one best new restaurant in America in 2014.
11: Yeah. Uh, and then I would say, you know, opening a rice shop uh, between 115th and 116th in Harlem, which has in that corridor has the highest unemployment rate. Um, and convincing uh, people to come to an area that was at one point the unsafest area in New York City, a corner where Malcolm X spoke, um, and changing the landscape. Uh, and I would say that's the risk is, you know, opening doors for people after me. That's, that's what I look forward to doing.
10: How many people have eaten at Field Trip? I'm putting you on the spot. Not enough. Okay, not enough. We got a lot of work to do. You got to get it. It's right
11: in front of the two and three train. So it's super easy.
10: Allison, how about you? Biggest risk.
3: I would say a couple come to mind. Um, starting a business five years ago felt absolutely terrifying for like a deeply type A calculated person, even though um, because of that it was a calculated risk, I felt very aware of what um, what failure looked like. Um, and I think that's an important part of taking risk. I, I, I don't necessarily believe in jumping off of a cliff and having no idea what the net below might look like or whether there is one. Um, so that was terrifying. Honestly, five years later, I think it still is terrifying.
10: So you're saying you're against the Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire, just quit, <laughs> free fall in kind of thing. You have to plan it.
3: I, I personally have to plan it. And I, you know, as a consultant who works with restaurateurs primarily who are opening businesses for the first time, yeah, I, you know, I believe in knowing what's on the other side. Even if you can't point, none of us can point to exactly what the outcome is going to be. Um, but you know, surprise birthday parties are one thing surprises and how businesses turn out and what the options are. I think that's less enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
10: Diddy and I were talking backstage, his whole career as well has been sort of a journey of risks. He moved from France to New York city and now he's moved from New York city to Chicago, which is a completely different place in terms of eating. So what do you think is the biggest risk you've taken?
12: Good morning um I think the first one I think is the when uh I decide to or decided or i said yes to the cast to come and open in two thousand the restaurant um it was difficult for multiple reasons first by the language uh the culture and uh and uh in a new city has new york uh so I think that's the first one. Uh, most of the time, the biggest risk we take is because we wanted to know what kind of food or what kind of story we want to say in the restaurant. And as soon as you don't find that story, you don't have a real restaurant. Uh, so I think that's the biggest. After I associate risk and ten and and challenge, and I like those. I like to take the new challenge. I like to go in something that you don't know and push yourself to find out and to try to understand where you cooked and for who you cooked and what you cooked. a
10: few days ago, Allison and I had a great conversation on the phone, um, looking forward to this panel. And I was mentioning there was this uh, Broadway producer named David Belasco who used to say a famous thing that's kind of haunted me. People would come up to him all the time and say, "Uh, I have an idea for a Broadway show. And he would give them his business card. And he would say, if you can write the idea for the show on the back of this card right now, we can talk. But if you can't fit it on the card, you don't have an idea. And that dovetailed with something that Allison really brilliantly was discussing, which I'd love to hear from, which is the importance of a clear vision when you're starting a restaurant.
3: I would say in the context of risk, that might be the greatest one, to not have clarity of vision. So many of the conversations that... We had last night and between all of us on the stage when we're pointing to restaurants that we really love and experiences that we keep going back to even as professionals in this profession we can't even totally point to what what was it about that experience that was so memorable so comfortable so engaging and i think it's this conversion around vision Every single detail in a restaurant needs to point to the same place. As human beings, we just inherently don't like confusion. We don't like to feel confused as guests. We definitely don't like to feel confused as employees and as leaders. And if you don't know what you're doing and why you're doing it, and I've already used that business card quote once between now and Friday, um, I just, I don't think that you have a business. It needs to be clear. And if it can't fit on a business card, maybe that's many chapters of restaurants that you have to open, but start, start with one.
10: I liked how you were saying on the phone that the, um, that idea, that perspective, the POV of the restaurant applies not just to the cooking, but to the, the mode of hospitality, the decor, everything has to kind of stick with that central idea
3: it's one decision that makes a thousand that's what it should be you make one central decision and every single decision should trickle down from that one makes things actually a lot easier
10: in that sense i think of all the great work that jj has done and i think there's always been a clarity of vision with your work jj like like the cecil was very the pov was very strong Right and field trip has a very strong perspective. It's you know like rice is culture is the mantra of the restaurant, and yet there's still a risk because you're ahead of the curve because these are not necessarily ideas always that are familiar uh, to the customers.
11: Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know I can write it on the back of a business card and say this is what the concept is, but um, you know a lot of places that I've traveled and cooked, most people have never even been to, and would never understand the flavor right, or would compare it to something that's not supposed to be compared to. Um, so for, for me, uh, the, the, the ideal concept is because I've been able to educate myself in an area that many other people haven't been able to educate themselves in. So when you do come eat food, my food, or other people's food that you don't understand, you should bring, I think, bring a friend, like call a lifeline that might understand it a little bit. Um, or go in with an open mind to understand the POV and don't treat it as novelty, as a one-time dining experience, what we do with a lot of cultural eating. Uh, We go in and we just look at it as this one time we experience it, it's great, it was amazing, and then we go on to something very familiar uh, that everybody else knows on the back of the business card or that you know on the back of the business card, but that business card or that concept you might not understand doesn't mean that it's not right or won't work.
10: Um, Didier, I wanted to ask you, you worked for years with Alain Ducasse, yeah, and one of the, um, I I, I compare this to, there was a magazine called Conde Nast Portfolio, which a lot of people talk about as the last great big magazine launch in America before the collapse, in some ways, of the publishing business, and um, Alain Ducasse at the Essex House, in some ways, is similar to that, that was this big money, you know, a lot of attention, uh, you know, I don't even know how many Michelin stars Chef Ducasse has, but you were associated with that, and it seemed from the outset like a low-risk kind of thing, and yet it it was controversial. Um, can you talk about that and that experience?
12: Yes, because I think at that level of details, to uh, to to um, you have to to see yourself like when you go into the kind of this restaurant, you have an Magic in between the lighting and magic in between the table, the napkins, the tablecloth, the the, the 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 china, the wine. So I think it's a, it's a little bit of everything who make a night. Yes. And behind that, you have to find the story. What is the story? What do you want to tell? What do you want to tell through uh, the menu that you are writing? Um, so. Are the season? How important are the 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 products you're selecting? Are important? Do you want it to uh, exactly doing French cuisine with not the same product or the product that you can find? S- as a similar, but it's not really the same one here. So I think that's all those details. that st- you need to find your 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 story. I'm keeping st- saying the story because it is a story. You have to find, uh, like writing a book about. This is what I want to say. What I want. So. It does take times. You have to understand the culture and, uh, on Dukas when or any restaurant of Dukas, every little details are very very important. For example, you eating with. Uh, Napkins who are fifty and seventy for all the savoury, and you're going into the dessert with a square one and forty and forty because it's like the tea time in. So every every little things have been a thought behind that, and that makes a lot of risk because I don't know if you remember, but we had crazy stuff at that time where we have pen yeah. that we're giving to for for the for the for when
10: when you signed your bill, which was a fairly Exorbitant bill—is it fair to say you would get a choice of pens to sign it with? <laughs> and
12: and it's, it was crazy, but on the on the point of Duke, I said, if I'm going to Mont Blanc and I'm buying something, they're going to give me a Mont Blanc to sign my check. Uh-huh. So I don't know if it makes sense, but the real the real idea behind that was with the knife, and I think that was great. We create different kind of knife, like different way to alter the knife to hit different meat. Like if you eat a squab, you don't need the same knife than if you eat a, a, a cut the beef. Yeah. So that was really great. And after, you extend to a stupid little thing.
10: Well, there was the, the, the thing that many people seem to remember about this restaurant was that there was a little stool... That you could put your purse on.
12: But look, in every <laughs> restaurant now, you have a hook to yeah. put your things. So it's, it was the beginning. He opened a door that creates other details restaurant oriented now, but it was 20 years ago.
10: Was it a timing issue then? I mean,
12: I think there was a, 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 a little timing issue. First, if you remember at that time, all the main restaurant who's doing tasting menu what at $75, seventy five seven eighty eighty five dollars. If you look at after the cast we opened with menu at one fifty and two fifty which was like wow crazy. In two thousand and three every restaurant has a one seventy five menu. So but the table was for you for all the dinner. we never turned the table. You have your own there was like the all the, the tablecloth was washed in the restaurant. So I don't know if those details people understand when you go to the restaurant, but there was, that was a fact. It was done like this because I think the, uh, the origin of the France or French gastronomy, it's okay. On that level, on the three mission star, it's only for there are 50 people who's working for 50 cover. Right.
10: Since then, um, how has the restaurant business evolved in terms of what customers want, Allison?
3: I think that luxury looks different now. Because luxury looks different. Sort of. I think that I think that we live in a bit of a social ice age by way of technology and our deep-rooted relationships with our phones and our laptops. And I'm not condemning any of that. I think that that's just a necessary part of oh, of, <laughs> of all of our lives. But I think that when we dine out, I think restaurants are these like last bastions of publicly available places to engage and connect and dare I say feel loved and so luxury isn't to me so much anymore that people are craving four different napkins throughout their meal Um, not to say that that didn't have a a place I think it does I think it's a beautiful attention to detail but I think what people want now more than anything else is to to be seen and to be taken care of in a in a very human way Um, and I think that that's much harder and I also think it's more worthwhile.
10: Well, it seems that in regard to what the customer wants and in, in regard to exploring culture, the aspirations of chefs have changed so much. I mean, uh, 15, 20 years ago, JJ, you might have been aspiring to work at a ducos restaurant or something, but in fact, what you're doing is being entrepreneurial, starting your own brand with Field Trip. Um, the, at the tasting menu level, we have places like Blanca and, and Atomix, Momofuku Ko that are a completely different vibe uh, than, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. So do you feel like chefs want something different?
11: I mean, I mean it all depends on where you are in your career. Um, and I just give you a backstory about Field Trip. Like, Field Trip was supposed to be a full-service restaurant. Um, but when we did the numbers, it just didn't add up. It we just wouldn't pay the bills. It just wouldn't, it didn't make sense. Like, who would pay $26 for a rice bowl? Right. That's like that's like convincing everybody like it's okay to pay twenty-six dollars for a rice bowl. And and when I say it's okay, it's like we're not full like we're not funded to a level where we can just like super test, like, okay, you'll pay twenty-six dollars today, but three months from now we'll go to fifteen dollars. And the only person I can think that was able to really do that and convince somebody at that level was David Chang. Like he convinced us that it was okay to eat without backs on the on the on the chairs. It was okay to eat ramen noodles this way, right? And we said if we were going to convince, if we were going to convince people, we would do it in a very moderate, affordable dining way, right? So we'll put it where you order from the counter. Um, we'll talk about the rice, but we won't really go into that detail. We won't in your face that the rice is freshly milled from the farm, and we refrigerate our rice, and there's no bleaching or all this motto behind what we do, we're going to figure out how to cost it right and give you the best product that any chef would give you at a four-star restaurant or at our restaurant, and um, it's, it, for me, it was about what can I afford to do in my career at the moment. It was less about what I wanted to do. Um, I think some, some, some chefs and some entrepreneurs are luckily able to do what they want to do because they have a lot of funding, right? They're able to fund a restaurant like a tech company. Uh, and I think it, as, as I start to move forward in the funding process, uh, we will fund Field Trip like a tech company. We'll fund it like WeWork was funded. We will fund it like um, some of my peers are like Oculus was funded, right? Where you're able to have all this money to float around to then figure out what your concept is so then you're able to project it into the world and it is successful. Because you don't really know who you are until you do it. And who I am today as a chef is different of who I was when I was doing a residency program at Chef's Club or when I was doing the Henry or when I was at Cecil. Um, I've evolved and I look at things different. Different. I, I look at things very much from like a really strong business perspective and how much things really cost to execute. Um, so yeah, I, I, I believe that chefs are evolving based on who they are and what they want to be.
10: Um, I want to point out that Didier uh, recently moved to Chicago, and he's not working the line at a restaurant as a chef. He's actually overseeing menu development at a whole bunch of restaurants in a restaurant group, the same group that has O'Chaval Cheval, and, places like that many many restaurants and in fact backstage he was showing me on his phone a kind of breakdown spreadsheet sort of thing of all these dishes they're experimenting with exploring and he was saying he's about to introduce blood sausage and tripe dishes to to the kind of uh, committee that decides so that's a fascinating point of view in terms of risk and being chicago what are you learning about what the audience wants
12: at all these different places I don't know yet what Chicago wants. What I know by my experience or the long years, it's they want to have a real food. They want to have a real soul of the chef. They don't want to have something just done because if you look at twenty years ago, twenty-five years ago, every restaurant has, or luxury restaurant has turbo Foie Gras, Truffle, Caviar. It was a bunch of lists like that. Everything was the same, different preparation. Now, I think the luxury in those restaurants is more like having the best wild catch sardine with a piece of butter. It's like, do you prefer to eat a farm turbo or a wild fish? Um, and I think Chicago is the same, still with the, the culture, the, or very um, heavy, deep culture of the Middle West. I think they, they want also to explore something. They wanted to, everyone is like, if you trust someone and that person said, okay, try it. We were talking about that and even with the, with the kids, it's like they tried and they, if they like it, they like it. So yeah, I think it's, people are more open, more willing to try something else, but only if they know where it's coming from. The, thing, the, the, the real issue right now is we don't know or we don't want it to eat something that we don't know if it's coming from a mass production or something bad for you. And that's the real luxury product, I think.
10: Um, I've noticed more and more a lot of restaurants getting attention um, in which uh, they're, they're the product of partnerships between um, people who are not just professionally involved but romantically involved, married. I mean, I think of Scott and Angie at Don Angie, uh, Rita and Jody at Via Carota. Everybody's probably been there. JP and Elliot at Atomix. Allison, from you, your standpoint, if you're working with a restaurant like that, that's the driving force is a couple – Um, is there a risk inherent in that? Like, what would be your perspective on that?
3: That is such an interesting question. Um, I, I don't know that I think that there's necessarily any... I think that partnership is incredibly important. I think that, you know, partnership is the meaning of our lives and having partners in business and in life and in friendship and in family is everything. And if you can... I think having self-awareness in a relationship and mixing it with business is probably the most critical uh, factor. I was actually just listening to Dana Cowan's interview of Jen Pelka and Charles Bilili's this morning on my way in, and I think that they articulated it very well. I mean, they're very clear about what where they differ and how they differ, and they've got clear boundaries within their relationship and their businesses, but in general, I think if you can combine passion and purpose with your relationship. I mean, we all spend a ton of time working. It's a gift to be able to do it with somebody that you love.
10: One of the things we talked about on the phone, it, and it, it's, it almost seems rudimentary or, or uh, you know, not quite as uh, dependent on the muse and creativity, but you were saying that one way to minimize risk is simply to have systems in place, leadership, team building, you know, like, just lock it down, really.
3: Yes. I think that things that are not communicated don't exist, and um, having systematized communication and intentional organizational structure is absolutely necessary. I mean, you, you have to have you have to have that. It's, the, it's like salt in cooking. You can have the most expensive dining room and the best products and the most talented team, but if you don't have salt, flavor doesn't sing and if you don't have communication and structure and intentionality with leadership it's the same it's the exact same thing for a restaurant organization it doesn't work
10: um how about let's talk about failure what happens when you fail I'm not saying any of you have of course I failed. (laughs) yeah yeah and then how do you come back from that and take another risk feel willing to take another risk
11: I mean, I think the first thing is you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say you failed, right? And you, you can say you failed with the person, the people you partnered with, right? You didn't do enough research to find out who they were when you partnered with them and they took advantage of you, right? Um, so, or you can say you failed in your partnership, not just your partnership at, with who you're with in the restaurant, but your partnership at home. There's plenty of us in this industry that fail with our partners at home on a daily basis because we're so consumed uh, in our in our uh, restaurants. And me and my wife have this conversation all the time about how much I'm consumed in the restaurant and sometimes I'm just not as consumed at home with her, right? That's failure to me. Uh, and, and, and that's something that uh, we have talked about to, to make better because that's how, that's how I was trained, right? That's how a lot of us are trained. Uh, but to come back, you know, I think for me, uh, I'll point out a failure of mine was the Henry. That was a failure for me. Um, that made my 2019 year really uh, hard uh, because it's something I poured my heart into and made a lot of people believe in on my team. And to go from that right into field trip when it was supposed to be something very easy to go into, when it was very well thought thought through, calculated, um, executed, was hard to just get up every day and say, okay, this is my restaurant now and I'm going to make it great. Uh, but, you know, I live by, like, a slogan that's tattooed on my arm, that passion plus drive equals success. And I kind of just push myself. And I'm also just really fortunate to have, like, parents that care, family that care, that were just really there to be like, come on, you know you're better than this. And you'll, it's, we fail every day. People fail every day. And you can get up from any failure. Um, but the, the one thing I would say is you have to accept it. You can't go through life-sating that, there, that, you don't, that you've never failed or you didn't fail in this moment.
10: I mean, I feel like that must have taken the wind out of your sails a bit because, I mean, Henry, you know, New York Times, one of the best new restaurants in, in the city that year, and then just really weeks later, right, months later, it's...
11: Yeah, no, 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 that was like, uh, that was like uh, somebody gut-checking you completely uh, and you weren't paying attention at all. That's the best way I can put it. Um, but the one thing I would say, that po- the positive that came out of that was like, I was able for, I think, other hotel owners, other restaurateurs to say, mm, maybe I will bet on somebody of color. Maybe I will go with an African American in the space. Right? Because when we look at hotels across the country, we don't see partnerships with African American chefs. Um, and we could probably name a couple. Uh, but like I said, it's a couple. So at that moment, it was like, oh, if New York is doing it, then I can do it in Portland or I can do it in Austin or I can do it in New Orleans. Uh, that's how I looked at it, the positivity that came from it. Um, and I'm always willing to put myself out there for people that look like me any day of the week so that they're set up for the future to be successful, especially knowing that my kids are coming up and... Um, not to say that my kids are going to be chefs. They're in the kitchen with me. If you watch me on Instagram, they're sometimes they're in the kitchen with me all the time cooking. But it was kind of like the same thing that, 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 that Diddy said at the Grammys. It was like, hey, rappers haven't been getting respect in the industry from the Grammy Recording Academy for years. And that really hit home for me was like African-Americans and black chefs have been cooking in the food industry for years. And we haven't got really no respect yet. So if I've, I feel like I'm ditty of the industry right now, and I'm going to put myself out there to make sure that it gets carved out. So I'll take that risk or failure at any moment.
10: It's interesting how, the, the, how things have unfolded for you. Like you won the James Beard Award with Alexander Smalls for the Cecil Cookbook, like just last year, right?
11: Yeah, Between Harlem and Heaven, get your copy.
10: <laughs> it's a great book. It's a great book. Um, these days, what, 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 what would you say is the, the chief risk factor in opening a restaurant number one money money but how about money what about
11: it we raise money to open a restaurant for three months right you do the p&l you put the money you're like okay i have enough money for three months mm. what happens after three months
10: ah, that's you don't even investors? know you're your you do not
11: even know your customer yeah you you made up this number you made up this stuff and you said this is what we're going to be and then you get to the three-month mark, and you've been funding it on the loss, which most of us have done in the first three months. And then you get to day 91, and you're like, oof, right? So I, I think money is the biggest thing, and there's a lot of restaurants that I know that have been able to have money that have gotten them to year three. And then after year three, they started to make money because people knew who they were, or they knew who they were, and then they were able to move forward. So it's a really big investment.
10: Allison?
3: I'm thinking about this one. I mean, to me the most. Uh, I agree with JJ. I think money is probably number one. I think people are up there. I mean, it's it's challenging to, uh, you know, related to money, have the runway that you need to know that you're going to be able to find and then train a leadership team and a staff that's going to be able to execute and support this vision that you've put so much time into creating. And I think to an extent when you know you're opening a restaurant, you can plan for that and recruit those people and, and have them under your wings, but you can only do that to a certain extent. And uh, I think people are always the magic, magic sauce. So,
10: What do you think is the riskiest thing?
12: Um, I think I'm agree with the with the money part of thing because uh, every time it's like when you want to try something, you need money, but um we talking. I wanted to jump also on the on the, on the failure uh, things. That yeah. uh, uh, because I I think the failure is its experience is addition of failure. Uh, to you have to learn. And I wanted to go back in 2005 when I was dreaming to have three Michelin stars. And I go back in France to run that. And in fact I stayed five years. We got two stars. I never get the three Michelin stars. And. Uh, I learned the, best, the biggest uh, lesson that I have in my life. is like, instead of cooking for the world, you have to cook first for the community or for the local people, the neighborhood, and after for your city, and after for your country, and after whatever. And I think this is, money, it's part of it, but after it's like, does the restaurant that you're doing is making sense to do it? Are you just doing a restaurant or are you doing something different? And this is what today we have access with internet, with everything to all the different concepts, all the different restaurants in the, around the world. So what are you doing? It makes sense or not? How did
10: you process it when that third Michelin star wasn't coming through?
12: It was very... Uh, I can't talk about it now. now. It, it took me like 10 years to talk about it, but, you know, I got... <laughs> I got all those Michelin stars with Ducasse. And when I tried by myself, um, I stayed. And every year we had that, you know, it's today. Today they released the stars in, 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 uh, in France. So I, I feel my phone beeping. So everyone texting for what is the, the, the announcement, how. But every f- January, February, you have that Michelin big, 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 big thing. And starting at the beginning of January, you have the rumor. On different newspapers in France, and the rumors are like by percentage, and you have like 50% of the chance that you are you can have the a staff 60%, 70%, whatever. And uh, I've been like for three years in a row with 90%. So for for me, it was like it was done in my head, and never been. Uh, so <laughs> I think that's the biggest. I think it's you need to realize that it's stupid because you're working for something that you cannot control. And you should work for yourself and to please the customer.
3: I think for so many of us in this profession, it doesn't come naturally to separate your self-worth from professional accomplishment and achievement. And when that's the case, to JJ's point, being able to separate yourself enough from failure to recognize it, uh, you can't do that until you've separated who you are with the feeling of failure. Feeling failure rather than being a failure. I think if 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 you are completely enmeshed, self worth and professional accomplishment, failure really can be debilitating.
10: You work with many restaurants as a consultant. I assume has every single one succeeded?
3: That's a loaded question because I think you know every individual has a different definition of success. I think I work with restaurateurs who would regard their projects maybe as in part or entirely as a failure even if they are still open and financially successful um, because those projects didn't express themselves the way that they wanted they weren't received the way that they wanted um but yeah i i i guess i've worked with restaurants in both senses that have financially failed and that have also um failed in a different way
10: does that impact you personally since you have a role in creating that restaurant of
3: course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think of myself as the the Sherpa. You know, right. if if my hiker You're falls like the off the mountain, of the it's restaurant. not good. Yeah. 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 Of course. Yeah.
10: Last question, quickly. What's a risk from the standpoint of media coverage? What's something you don't want to do? No Wait, to
11: what What does that mean, Jeff? <laughs>
10: I mean, there's so much scrutiny of restaurants right now. It's 24-7, social media, uh, blogs, you know, magazines. It just, just is, there, is there a risk inherent in how you present yourself?
11: Uh, I would say the risk, right? I, I, this is, I mean, I could take that a lot of different ways as I see the clock ticking. is um,
10: You're just going to run out the clock? <laughs> no, I'm not
11: going to. I was hoping somebody was going to cut me off.
3: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a, I think it's a risk because, you know, you have no idea yeah. in a lot of cases. What the, and, the, and,
11: and do you, like, are you opening a restaurant for, for the media or are you opening the restaurant for the community, right? Like, I'm, I'm opening the restaurant for the community to be able to eat in there every day. If the media comes, that's really great for us because that gets to tell people to come eat at our restaurant. But, you know, I'm probably going to become really, I'm probably going to start writing op-eds towards the media because I watch where the media eats and they're not fair. Not you.
10: (laughs) You know, but we've had this conversation. Talk
11: about it all the time. If you're in
10: food media and you haven't been to Harlem to eat a field trip, Taronga, a lot of places, I mean, I'd say you're dropping the ball. I
11: I listen to people, I listen to media tell me all the time it's easier to get to Chicago than it gets to Harlem, but you got to drive by Harlem to get to Chicago. Unless you're going to Newark.
10: Amazing.
3: I mean, I think always at the end of the day in media, outside of media, our best hope is to do work that has integrity and that feels true to us and meaningful and purposeful. And that does not guarantee a positive media outcome. But at least you get to, you know, fail and go to sleep at night feeling good about yourself.
10: We're out of time, which sucks. The clock is already done. So thanks so much to this trio, incredible group of people.
1: This episode is brought to you by Verterra. Impressively versatile, stylishly sustainable, environmentally disposable dinnerware from Fallen Leaves. Verterra is a mission-driven company focused on making environmentally responsible, single-use products. Founded in 2006 on the belief that every culinary creation deserves a beautiful, sustainably crafted foundation, Verterra reclaims earthly discards like Fallen Leaves and Tree Scraps to design elegant, disposable dinnerware that elevates the look of food presentation. In short, a beautiful disposable plate that can go with your food to a composting facility. The team from Verterra recently made a huge pivot with their factories and started producing masks, gloves, sanitizer, and other PPE that food businesses need to safely reopen. Learn more at vertera.com. That's Verterra.com. That's
13: V E R T E R R A.com. Um, my name is Maria Elena Martinez. I am the co-founder of a website called New Worlder, which is a culinary travel site that explores food and drink through the Latin American perspective, and the founder of Meets New York City, which is an events brand that brings chefs into New York to showcase their culinary heritage. But most importantly to this panel, I'm a Brooklyn resident. And I want to welcome you to today's session, Changing Neighborhoods, Changing Needs, Brooklyn and Beyond where we'll explore how restaurants and the hospitality industry really put Brooklyn on the map. Um, While this has affected nearly every part of the borough, when we asked one of our panelists, Alice Chang, where most people mean when they think of Brooklyn in terms of food and drink, she says that the answer to that question is North Brooklyn, here, essentially, Williamsburg. Um, And it's the most sought out part of Brooklyn when we think about influences and inspiration. And there's plenty to discuss past Brooklyn and that's why some of past Williamsburg and that's why our panelists kind of make up a different uh, swath of what's happening here on a larger scale. So I'd like to introduce them. Brandon Hoy on the end is the co-owner of the iconic Roberta's in Bushwick which opened in 2008. As we'll talk a little bit on the panel, Roberta's is the Brooklyn institution that many closely associate with the borough around the world. And over the years, it's grown to include the two Michelin-starred-tasting-driven Blanca, and now in Los Angeles Outpost. Alongside co-owner and chef Carla Mirarchi, Hoy founded Roberta's with the goal of providing the underserved neighborhood of Bushwick with artisanal food and drinks, and of course, vibe. At the helm of daily operations also friends their art department, which is responsible for packaging and merchandise. Sean, next to me, is, Sean Feeney partnered with then-neighbor Chef Missy Robbins in 2014 to build their hospitality company, Grove House. Together, they're responsible for two of Williamsburg's most popular restaurants, Lilia and Missy, which opened in 2016 and 2018, and both received three stars from the New York Times. Until 2019, when he finally stepped back to focus solely on his restaurants, Feeney spent 16 years in finance at companies like Cantor Fitzgerald and Goldman Sachs. And in addition to Missy and Lilia, Sean is the managing partner of Hometown Barbecue and Red Hook Tavern. Alice Chang, in the middle, is the founder and CEO of Culinary Agents, a professional networking and job marketing website designed for the hospitality industry. Culinary Agents has become something of a marker of the changing needs and trends of restaurants in New York City, and she'll help us make sense of how that spotlight shifted away from New York City to Brooklyn over the last 10 years or so. She currently serves as an advisor for Food X, an accelerator program for food-related tech startups and for Women in Hospitality United, a nonprofit that works toward developing new standards for equity, accountability, and transparency within hospitality. Now that we got all that out of the way, um, I want to start with the growth of Bushwick. Um, in 2008, a restaurant called Roberta's jumped onto the culinary landscape, taking a once desolate area of the borough and making it hot and interesting and a destination that people travel to eat pizza. Um, So there was stuff happening in Williamsburg at that time and we'll talk about some of that as we talk about Missy and Lilia and Sean's experience. But I really think that Brandon has kind of an interesting outlook on what launched this global Brooklyn thing. So, Brandon, if you want to just tell us a little bit about, paint the picture of Bushwick then, before Roberta's, sure. what led up to it, and how it changed.
4: Yeah, I think, I think there is a common misconception that it was desolate. And I think there's, there's two <clears throat> very distinct uh, parts of Bushwick. And, and where we were is still actually considered East Williamsburg. It was the East Williamsburg Industrial Park. And, and when we moved there, even prior to moving there, we were hanging out in the neighborhood, and it was largely blue-collar neighborhood. There was a lot of uh, industry there. There was still you know, cement factories. Um, Boar's Head has a large distribution center there. There's the wonton factory. So, so a lot of what was happening was still very industrial. Um, and, and at night, it was very dark. Um, there was a pack of wild dogs that lived in the neighborhood when we got there. Um, so, <laughs> desolate. Uh, to, to the sense that like, it, it still felt very, um, very empty and, the, and there wasn't a lot happening. And, and um, there, there was a strong community that lived there. There, there, was, there was a lot of people that had been there for years who, who um, were working in, the, in this industries and the, the factories close by. And, and there was also a budding artist neighborhood that was forming as well. There was a lot of large spaces for people to, to work in and to, um, and to, to live work. And, and it was starting to really have this undertow of, of, of creativeness that we started to see. And um, I was introduced to it, you know, three years prior to this, a, a friend, Chops, had um, opened a bar called Kings County. It was really kind of one of the first things to, to, to happen in the industrial park. Um, and there was just a lot of, there, there was just a sense of creativeness that was happening there, and there was a lot of artists. Um, and a lot of music that was happening. And I think that was what really drew um, us to the neighborhood. We just really felt like this was a place that that um, was, one, was affordable for young people to, to kind of get a lot of space and, and be creative. Um, but but the one thing that we noticed quickly was that there wasn't a lot in the neighborhood to do outside of kings county there wasn't a lot of amenities for for people who were living in the neighborhood most of these people were jumping back on the L train and head, heading into williamsburg or or going <clears throat> into the east village and and you know this this cycle of kind of artistry has happened for for years right it's it's whether it was Soho and then moved to the East Village it's it's we've seen this progression happen and, and it just happened to be that at that time that that Bushwick was that place where where it was happening and you can re- it was palatable you could you could really sense it when you were there that there was this really young energy and th- and that was prior to Roberta's we we just knew that it existed there and and really our goal in the beginning was to to create a watering hole for these people and like-minded people and people of this neighborhood to kind of like bring the community together and 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 we we've Found it to be such a, a beautiful neighborhood, despite all of this kind of like post-apocalyptic um, like exterior and the, and the wild dogs. Um, it was definitely a place where, you know, we, we could light fireworks. It it almost seemed lawless at the at the time uh, that we were there, and um, but but also just such a beautiful place for us to create something. And and um, what was important to us really was that we were young. And we didn't have a lot of money to, to get into this, but we knew this is what we wanted to do. And, and, and East Williamsburg Industrial Park was a, a place that was accepting to us and was affordable for us to move into. And, um, and thank God, it was beautiful.
13: Sean, <laughs> tell us a little bit about um, the opening of Lilia and the search for where you were going to open this new restaurant. Missy had been off the scene for a few years and it was really important to find the right space. You were in the uh, West Village, which is like ground zero for amazing new restaurants.
2: Yeah, so when uh, when Missy and I were living in the same building as each other for about five years, uh, we came to this moment where my wife and I had this idea of of potentially partnering with her to open her own restaurant. And um, she said no to me a lot of times over the course of four months, but those conversations every time she was saying no to me, we were having some great um, developments in what our our company was gonna be founded upon. So when she finally did say yes to us, um, we knew that she was going to be the creative force, but we also were able to agree on how we were gonna run a successful and profitable business too. Because if we were, she would have the greatest canvas and biggest canvas she could ever wanna paint on. So once that night did happen and we said, let's do this, we then spent 10 months trying to will ourselves into a space in the West Village because that's where we lived, and it was just not possible. And then we started going to other places in Manhattan, which were not possible either. And by luck, I was able to uh, find a space through a friend in North Williamsburg that was an auto body shop. And I sent Missy a text, and we were very frustrated. We weren't sure if this partnership was even going to last to see a restaurant open. And I texted her the space. And because my dad's in the audience right now, I'm not going to say exactly what the text back to me was. But it did say, I am not opening an effing restaurant in effing Brooklyn. So you said it. Yes. And uh, I said, well, listen, we might not be able to open a restaurant together, period, so can you please just go look? And she did go look, and the catalyst was financial. The second spot, the second thing that that made this, this happen was Missy having the vision, seeing the bones of the disgusting auto body shop, where two people were actually squatting on the side room. During the night, they would throw raves, and they would wake up in the morning hungover and sleep, and then there were actually cars in the space when she went in to see it. So I was at work texting her, what is it like? Tell me, like, a little something, and she's like, Jesus, I don't even know where I am. Like, I literally don't know where the subway stop is. So I said, okay, well, but she's like, I think we should come and look. So for the next couple weeks, we would go every single day possible to just look at this neighborhood and what we saw was we definitely did not look like anybody in the neighborhood. Um, with I was wearing Gucci loafers and a, one of those like finance Patagonia vests, so I definitely did not look anything <laughs> like. Um, but we did see these buildings that were. I going was one up. of the squatters in that building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't wear those Gucci loafers anymore. Um, And what we were doing was we were walking around and seeing this vibrant community, this young, diverse community, and a lot of these buildings going up. So we were like, gosh, we we got a shot. You know, we were were definitely motivated by the finances. We were inspired by the bones. But now we're like, this could be a reality because we got a shot to welcome these people in. So that's when we felt good about it. So 14 months later, we opened Lilia in January of 2016. And our whole thing was, we wanted it to be an extension of our home. That's how we became friends. That's how we became family and partners. And we wanted this place that we were opening to be an extension of our home. And we wanted to create these inspiring dining experiences to help make every day a good day. The only way we were gonna be able to do that was when somebody entered, anybody. They, w- they needed to feel like they were safe and while they were in our presence to feel comfort, not to think about anything else that was going on before they arrived so that it gave them the opportunity to leave happier. And that's what we tried to do every single day. And what we heard and what we saw were as proud as we were to deliver those experiences the people that were coming to dine from the neighborhood were as proud to be there they also were talking a lot and we would hear every night how proud they were that we were a part of their neighborhood and that they felt like Lilia was an extension of their home and that was pretty awesome to feel and from then that point on no matter what we were going to do together missy and i we wanted to to really be a part of this this community and i think it was you know looking around understanding that we had this responsibility now to be a part of this incredibly strong neighborhood that had this rich and diverse history but also that we had an opportunity, almost an obligation to push it forward and to be a part of, of an exciting future. And that's kind of what led us now to, to Missy, which is in South Williamsburg, where the building that we went into definitely didn't have any bones. It was actually, a, it was just a white box. It wasn't inspiring at all. And it was the challenge to create a, a, a warm environment and a cool environment that we had at, at Lilia. But it, it was the catalyst for us to be a part of South Williamsburg, this revitalization and this relaunch, and to be part of the exciting future of growth. And um, forever now, that's kind of what, we, what we're focused on. And I think it's about two things. As much as we wanted to create this environment inside our walls, we now saw what the power of creating that environment outside of the walls and and investing in that community and engaging in a community, what type of magic that can create. And although that's what we do every night, we feed people and make them happier, we do have this amazing ability right now to invest and engage in the community outside of our restaurants, too, and we do many things to, to, to do it.
13: Well, in between opening of Lilia and Missy and after Roberta's, um, 2011, Sifton reviewed Roberta's in the Times, and 2017? 16. 16, you got a three star yes. for Lilia. So in between that, Culinary Agents started in 2012. So you're saddled in between these two incredible touchstone restaurants for Brooklyn. Can you just tell us a little bit about what was happening after Roberta's got this incredible review and before Lilia came along and created a new buzz in Williamsburg?
14: Absolutely, and we started in 2012 and we're a, a tech startup that was focused on how do we create tools to better support Small business owners, restaurateurs that were struggling with not just finding the right people, but also having operations tools that were efficient, and ultimately, you know, how do you project your employer brand and tell people that you're looking for great talent and make it easy for them to apply to your jobs? So, um, you know, one thing that I will say in general, which which both of these um, gentlemen and their partners have done, is when folks say we want. Brooklyn or, or we want this to be like Brooklyn. I think what they're referring to is this this vibe. And for folks who have never even been here or spent any time here, you see them referring, I want to create a space like that. And that's really something really incredible that I think, you know, the the, the folks in the room here and, and and people who are seeking out new spaces is that hospitality and the restaurants that you all create define and develop neighborhoods that then not only inspire the Immediate community and um, you know cities around it, but also um, other cities. I mean, we're we're nationwide. I'll go into you know Atlanta, and, and people will be like, "I want that Brooklyn vibe." I'm like, "Oh, have you been there?" Like, no. I'm like, "Okay," you know. But between social media and all the all the um, uh, all the you know access to things, and um, it's it's really incredible thing for for. Us to see as we've grown um, but sorry I digress um, specifically back to Brooklyn what we saw in Iran you know is uh, aligned with our growth one thing that really interestingly happened in that time frame was that not only did we have um, a spike in more businesses in the Brooklyn area uh, looking for talent but this was the only area that the applicants were outpacing the number of jobs that were posting by you know five hundred to a thousand percent. In other areas, you see some correlation of more jobs, more businesses, more jobs, more applicants. In Brooklyn specifically, from 2000 and, uh, uh, 2015 2017, the number of applicants were skyrocketing. Um, and outpacing the number of jobs, which was something that we were not seeing happen in other cities and other neighborhoods. And
4: farewell to that time. <laughs>
13: <laughs> well, do it, in terms of, you know, Roberta's and, and Lilia and Missy, are your staff living in the area? I mean, are, where are they coming from? And are they living in the area that you, know, you have created for them? Are they locals? Or do they travel to get to your spots? Like, Have you tra- created a true community yeah, I, I around think, your restaurants?
2: I think we're really fortunate because I would say 80% of our teams live within a three-mile radius of our restaurants. And what that creates is the opportunity to live a healthier life in terms of walking to work or riding a bike. Um, also, financially, they're not spending a third of their earnings each night taking an Uber home to Brooklyn at 1.30 in the morning. Um, I also think it's a pretty magical thing that has been created in that when they're at the restaurant, they've, they're viewed as friends of our guests. And what we've seen them going to baby showers, um, weddings, or special life events outside of our restaurants where they've, they've essentially made relationships with, with our guests and neighbors. And it's a pretty powerful thing. And that I don't believe would have been able to have happened in the West Village if we did open a restaurant there. Brandon, you see similar? Yeah. I mean, almost all of our
4: employees come from the, from the area, you know, pushing out to East New York, but, but primarily most of them are coming from Bushwick and, and Williamsburg. Um, and, and it has been kind of since, since the um, early days. And I, and I think there's still just like, there's still, it's still affordable, um, you know, that this is probably Ish. changing-ish. Yeah, but but still, you know, for, further out in Bushwick is is still affordable. Um, but we're we're seeing less people coming from Williamsburg, less employees that are that are coming from Williamsburg. It's actually trending further east, to be honest with you, East New York and 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 those neighborhoods.
13: Alice, you had said something interesting to me when we were talking that in like fift- 2015, 2016, Brooklyn became its own search tab. Right? Is that right? Explain yes. a little bit about that because it's fascinating in the book. Yes, yeah,
14: so we, and, and a lot of this, the caveat is is a lot of it was was the growth of our company. Right right now we we have almost a million users across the U.S. And, um, you know, the New York tri-state area is, is our biggest metro. In the beginning we had bundled everything in together to the New York City area as in one major metro area. Um, and then around the times that we talked about, um, we realized that we wanted better data. We wanted to be able to see migration patterns. We wanted to understand um, you know, why are we getting spikes of average applicants? Is it because now um, people who live in Brooklyn have other options, have more options, have um more places that they specifically are seeking out to work and uh you know instead of just applying to um manhattan restaurants they're and, applying the, to- and the
4: cost of living as well right exactly. which i think becomes such a factor in this whole thing um it's not an easy business to, to make it in um and, and like for the most part these people are like looking for places that are affordable for them to live I, I would say outside of your back of house staff, a lot of these people are searching for a different destination for their career, whether it is in music or acting, but they're all looking for something else when they first get into this. And I think those people are typically looking for for places to live that they can afford.
14: Absolutely, and we actually have a, um, a willing to relocate feature that we had added, and we also noticed people were specifically calling out Brooklyn versus just willing to relocate to New York City area. Um, and so we—that's w- kind of when we started breaking out and, and being able to look at the trends for Brooklyn separate from New York City. It's pretty interesting.
13: Sean, you had mentioned that in in your staff living local, that there's a wellness piece that comes in to play when they're biking to work or walking to work. That like doesn't didn't even dawn on you when you were seeing what was happening with your staffing at Lilia, Missy.
2: Yeah, it's b- it's been an awesome thing for people to feel like they can wake up and go for a workout or a a class of yoga or Pilates and or meditate or therapy and they can do all that stuff before they come to work And, um, and financially they're able to live a healthier life too which is a huge you know thing for people and their well-being.
14: So it's getting stuck in the train, just like, you know, it's not healthy for anybody.
13: Or that's fun. True. It's not really that fun either. Uh, what are the benefits, do you think, to all of these restaurants springing up in Brooklyn, besides Buzz? I mean, there's an international cachet that's happening if you have a restaurant in Brooklyn at this point. But in addition to Buzz, why would you tell someone else to open in Brooklyn? Outside of just well, it being affordable, <clears> per se? Like, what... What do you think are the draw besides just buzz?
4: One of the first things I think was... I mean, especially for us, we got the opportunity to break the mold. There was there was an old guard, if you will, and there was a way to opening a restaurant when we did this, and I think um, when you moved outside to Brooklyn, it kind of opened up the platform for you to do it as you will, and I think it gave people a lot of opportunities to, to reimagine what a restaurant was to them, and and I think Brooklyn gave that to a lot of people, where, where they got to say, this is, this is how I feel about the hospitality industry, and this is how this is what a restaurant is to me, and I think your your voice kind of was silenced that you you kind of had to fit into that box in in manhattan and and there was just it was so cost prohibitive to 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 do business there that you had to make it financial and i think i think there was a lot more artistry that got to happen in Brooklyn because you were free of some of that financial burden and you really got to open something that you were passionate about and something that really meant something personal to you. And I, and I think that that was an opportunity that happened throughout Brooklyn that was, that was really refreshing. And I think philosophically that carried on, even as it got more expensive to do, I think people took, this is an opportunity to say, I'm going to be innovative in this field, and I'm going to change the way that people perceive the restaurant business.
2: I think the three things. It's hard for me to give advice to anybody opening a restaurant because it's it's up to you what you want your path to be. But for me, the thing, the three things that I've really loved about Brooklyn, Williamsburg, Red Hook, these communities, is one the diversity. Um, you know, the the motto of Brooklyn is uh, in unity there is strength. And, you know, of, of course, last, last week, we all remember that we come on different boats, but now we're in the same boat together. And when I see what goes on in our restaurants every night, not just guests, but the makeup of our, of our teams, we're living that. And I'm really proud to be a part of that. And that excites me to continue doing it in Brooklyn, in the neighborhoods that we're doing it in. And number two, my, my family, raising a family in Brooklyn has been an exciting thing that I never thought would ever be something that I was going to entertain. It was always about, you know, moving back to the Jersey Shore where I grew up and I had this cul-de-sac that I would play basketball and soccer with the older guys and that's, the, that's what I always had in my plan. But now I have this wonderful backyard of Domino Park and McCarran Park and, um, it's just been a really pleasant thing to see, especially uh, at like 1.30 every afternoon, if you come to Missy, and you'll see a lineup of children that are literally looking into our poster room like it's an aquarium. And, um, but what's really incredible is, you, at any moment of the day, you'll see a, a, a Hasidic family, a black family, a Latino family, and then my two boys who are, you know, basically headbutting the window. And at four o'clock every day we we wipe this big glass pasta room window down because it's all the snot and the fingerprints of all these <laughs> different kids. And like for me, that is so exciting to be able to raise a family in this type of world that we live in. And, it's there for you. And then the third thing I would just say what I'm so proud about is, is to see that interaction of our team and guests. And it's no, it, there is no division. There's no separation. And uh, I just don't think I would have been able to have all of those three things if again, we opened in the West Village of Manhattan.
13: So in terms of opening in other places, uh, you are in Miami with Hometown Barbecue. No, I, I, no. I do not have a part in Miami. You do not? No, no, okay. no. Okay, just in the air. That's Billy. So you have Red Hook Spaces and you have Roberta's going into L.A. How do you replicate in other areas that aren't the original space, the original, you know, the original thing that people love so much? How do you do that?
4: I, I, I just never looked at it as replication. For okay. me, the, I, I've birthed these things and their children to me and i nurture them and like the the common line is their dna that they're a- Raised by Carlo and I, and I think the best thing you can do is like give them a give them a chance into the world. You put them out there, and and you do all of the things that a good business does. You're 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 like diligent on things, and and you try to like create like cultural beats with them. But but replication is is a very difficult thing when it comes, especially a place like Roberta's, and and I, I don't think we ever went into it being like we want to replicate this all over i think what we did was we we wanted one to feed people high quality food and that we were very passionate about and for us these were just more opportunities to 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 feed people and i think we looked at it that that way always that this was a new thing this was a new child and this child was going to have characteristics of its own and it was going to grow up thinking its own way but its common dna was
2: us and I think the only replication that we do is is the process of finding those spaces. You know, Lilia was the 39th place that we looked at. It was the first place outside of Manhattan. Missy, we looked at 42 places be- before finding, you know, this, this great project of South Williamsburg. Um, you know, we're on site 51 right now for number three. Like, and I don't know, we don't have in our minds like, a number, uh, I think it's just that maniacal and methodical process sticking to that formula that we, that we believed in from the beginning, um, but also not ever wanting our spaces to feel like we're not there and, and did not feel special like they do with Lily and Missy. That's, that's probably the number one most important thing. It's, it's, you know, are our fingerprints all over that place?
14: I'm guilty of, of stopping and staring into the window, so <laughs> I'm sure my fingerprints and hopefully not my snots are there. How do you see,
13: Alice, how do you see this continuing? Do you see it slowing down anytime soon, this like eternal desire for applicants to be in Brooklyn and be part of what is continuing to, to cement itself here?
14: Well, I think what... Well, no, I don't see it stopping, and no, I don't hope that it will stop either. Um, I think it's it's a cycle, right? What 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 you all have started is um, created opportunity for not just yourself for further growth, but also others to take the risk to find the space and to um, to kind of build upon the foundation that's that's already there. Um, applicants, I think, in line of living healthier lifestyles, being more sustainable. We focus on career development and mentorship, and we look at career pathing. And the restaurant industry is really the feeder to the rest of the hospitality industry. I mean, there's different pillars. There's hotels. There's food service. And and if you look at um, longevity in the industry, there's a lot of things that I think um, all of the leaders, you know, in the space are doing and really vocalizing to create better, better spaces for their staff and for their for their teams and for themselves, to promote, you know, creativity and growth. And I, I don't know if that was something that was so, you know, on the forefront of 10, 15 years ago. Uh, it was a, a different different time. We saw applicants thinking about their careers differently, even in the early stages. We're an eight year old, eight-year-young startup, I should say, um, and when we look at also, we fold in um, um, analytics and, and some uh, AI into, into our applications, so how do we help talent discover? They're clearly wanting to do things. You see them, you see the pattern of the types of jobs they apply to, where they apply to, where they want to relocate to, what category of businesses, maybe a particular chef or cuisine or something that they're following and we feed that back to help them discover. You were doing these things in this neighborhood. What about these other things within that neighborhood? By the way, these are new openings. By the way, this is the type of cuisine that you said that you're really trying to learn or grow in. And as people start thinking about their careers differently, like what skills do I want to learn? I want to open my own restaurant one day. Who do I think has done it really well? Let me go work for them. People are being much more deliberate with where they want to work who they want to work for and what culture they want to grow in and that's really inspiring to see
13: where are you seeing
14: some of the growth outside of
13: north williamsburg and bushwick and is there room to, to you guys, is there room for more growth? I mean, I feel, I feel like Williamsburg is, feel, has so many restaurants. Where is the room for continued growth, both in Williamsburg and
14: Bushwick, and
13: where do you see
14: people choosing
13: after Williamsburg and Bushwick? Where else are we growing?
14: Well, well, I'll say, because I'm, I'm a little once removed from specific neighborhoods. Um, what we've seen in also other cities is that there are definitely, you know, whether it's government initi- initiated, there are definitely areas and pockets of areas that are under high development. In Boston, all by the water. And you, know, you see that almost forced in some areas where there's so much developing development going into an area, it loses a little bit of its soul, dare I say. Um, and maybe the projects are driven by different, um, you know, different different priorities. Um, I think in, in the Brooklyn area specifically, what I see and what I hope to continue to see is that in every major um, neighborhood, there's been a handful of uh, pioneers, of folks who have kind of come in and defined it. And then they've been able to successfully not only create that, that, that vibe, that space, and their own um, mark, if you will, but they've been successful in moving to another part of Brooklyn or another area, another city, and still, I think what people really um, look for is, do I still, are you still true to your original spaces? Like, they don't right. want the original ones to be different now that you've grown past. You don't want to, you know, dare I say like... Sell out. <laughs> Where do you see what's
13: next, Sean go. and Brandon? I mean, it's a hard, it's a,
4: it's a hard one you battle with, but, but like I said, for, for us, it, it was always just like like giving birth like you're just keep creating and you keep moving forward but it but it's a hard it's definitely something that that you struggle with selling out right and and what that means so so what that meant on the first creation is is always different in the different in the second and um or or like creating an album it's like you can only make the music you can make and you it's hard to go back in time and recreate the things of your past you're you're a younger um you know I, I wasn't nearly as smart I'm not very smart now but I wasn't nearly as smart then so the things that you do you know in the evolution of you as a person just start to change it's it's hard you sh- I struggle with it too, it, it's hard. You look back on these things sometimes. Uh, we talked earlier about having perspective. It's hard when you're in, in the midst of it. You're so caught up. Uh, everything is all in all the time and then sometimes when you get a chance to look back on these things, you know, it can, it can be both sad and, 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 and like a very like warm feeling at the same time.
2: Sean? I mean we're still excited about Williamsburg and there's still a lot of work to be done there and um, we're definitely gonna try and do that but I'm also really excited about Sunset Park, Brownsville, East New York. This is where I wanna spend my time in the next 15 and 20 years because that's where the real opportunity is. We have nine kids, 17 year old kids that work with us at Lilia and Missy that come from those neighborhoods, that go to culinary high schools, that go to a high school in Williamsburg. And I want those kids to be with us to open up their own places in their hometowns. And I think that that is what this is gonna be about, making those places better that they grew up in. And that's gonna be the reality. So. Right now, we're gonna keep on doing our thing in Williamsburg because the opportunity is still there to do it, but the potential to, to really push it and keep moving neighborhoods forward, I think there's just such a great chance to, to take advantage of.
13: Thank you, guys. I could keep doing this for another hour, but I'm already over and I'm gonna get yelled at. So thank you so much, you guys. This has been a great panel.
5: Hi everyone. So, anyone who can only can go by just one name really doesn't need an introduction. We all know Drew, but as I do on my show, I like to give a little a little background of my guest before we get into to talking. So, let me tell you some of the things uh, that Drew has accomplished. So, Drew was a guest on my episode one seventy six. He is one of America's most respected. Drew is the founder and inspiration behind Marriott Restaurant Group, which includes Tribeca Grill, Nobu 57, Nobu Downtown, Nobu London, Batard, the Porsche Grill at City Field, Daily Burger at Madison Square Garden and Crush Wine and Spirits. Over the last 33 years, Marriott has opened and operated over 40 restaurants around the world earning countless accolades, including opening Tribeca Grill with partner Robert De Niro to national acclaim, Drew's first restaurant, the groundbreaking Montrachet, which earned three stars from the New York Times and kept its rating for 21 years, and Petard, which also earned three New York Times stars, plus a Michelin star and Best New Restaurant in America at the 2015 James Beard Awards. And Drew has also received James Beard Awards for Outstanding Restaurant Tour, and Humanitarian of the year. I could go on and on with your accolades, but Drew Neport, welcome to. Hope. Good morning, everybody. So, uh, always on, on my on my show, I always I always start out with my guests' backgrounds and how they got into into the industry or their career. And we had covered a bit of you know in your in the early days, you were exposed to restaurants. And, um, and you knew very early on that you wanted to be a restaurateur. But my question is, what drew you in?
15: Very interesting. Well, um, I grew up in New York City, uh, Peter Cooper Village, which is uh, the housing projects along the East River, 23rd Street, the 20th Street. Great community. Um, a lot of middle class Jews there. Um, and my mother was an actress in radio. And my father worked for the State Liquor Authority. So when we were kids, my father um, had a way of taking the application from the bottom of the pile to the top of the pile. So the restaurateurs would invite us to restaurants to eat on the arm, essentially. Uh, And and I was exposed to this unbelievable number of uh, uh, restaurants. And these were people right off the boat. This was the 60s. And the food was very authentic and every kind of cuisine you can imagine. So at a very early age, um, my mother, who was very theatrical, I saw the restaurant business as being very theatrical. And my father was 16 years older than my mother, but he had a way of um, just endearing himself to these restaurateurs. They loved him. Uh, When we go out, I just absolutely adored the whole experience. And I knew that that was what I was going to do.
5: And you certainly have. And then you worked at McDonald's, you worked on cruise ships, Tavern on the Green, as well as more formal restaurants like the La's and the Lay's, uh, Le Père Gourde and Le Grand Am right. I saying it right? Well, yeah. um, so what would you say the biggest lesson learned from all these all these jobs? I mean, it's it's quite a, a mix. Well, first
15: of all, I'm, I'm happy to be here today because you, you've assembled a tremendous group of people. The, the panels this morning have been very interesting to me. A lot of people um, who are obviously very entrenched in what we do, um, but you know, I'm 64 now. I started; I owned my first restaurant when I was 29, um, and but I'm still interested. The the reality is nothing supplants a professional experience, knowledge, and then the confidence in what you know. So at a very early age, you know, I I looked at the industry, and my father uh, took us out to all these places. But So I was a a student at Stuyvesant High School. I got into the Cornell School of Hotel Administration. Um, When I was in high school, I worked at McDonald's. What does McDonald's teach you? It was unbelievable. McDonald's was one of the best experiences I've ever had in the industry because it basically taught you the simplicity of doing something right and clean and making money. When I was a student, I was 18 years old, and I was walking through the corridors of Cornell, and um, I saw a sign on a bulletin board looking for six students, experienced, experienced, in Russian service to sail to the following ports, Leningrad, Copenhagen, Stockholm, Oslo. I mean, a a cruise ship to work as a waiter. And guess what? I never ever worked in the dining room of a restaurant. I had never been a waiter, but I called the, the, the number. Are you experienced in Russian service? Oh yes, oh yes I am. So I get on the MS Vista Fjord, 1974. I was 18 years old. Uh, they gave you a uniform and I come into the dining room and there's 60 waiters. The, the dining room is a, a football field, 600 passengers, and I'm wearing a blue shirt. Now, waiters don't wear blue shirts. I'm wearing a blue shirt. Uh, waiters wear white shirts. So I had 59 waiters laughing at me because they knew I was an imposter. Also the way you carry the tray, you know they're carrying the tray like this, I'm carrying the tray with two hands, and you know, the, the kitchen's by escalator downstairs. Anyway, it was like riding a bicycle. 42 day cruise, I was, um, you have the same customers, you work seven days a week, you work bref- breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Do you think you get some experience from that? Of course. So over the four years that I was a student at Cornell, I went back almost every Christmas cruise, almost every summer, because why I was traveling you know thank God I wasn't drafted into the military but this was supplanting what that military experience would have brought but more importantly seeing 600 meals every day three times a day watching how that worked that was a tremendous education and um, you know when I finished when I graduated Cornell you know at Cornell back then miserable It has the best reputation, oh, we're the best. We are the best. Nobody goes into the restaurant business. Nobody, because they're smart. But guess what? In the 70s, you could make money in the restaurant business. So, you know, Drew, what are you gonna do? I'm gonna open my own restaurant, never did. Um, I went to work at Tavern on the Green, which at that time was one of the most incredible places. And we, you know, served 1,500 people for brunch and 1,000 people for dinner. Um, and then I got fed up and I started to work in French restaurants, La Grenouille, Le Regence. I worked with Daniel Balloud in 1984 uh, at the Plaza Athene and Le Perigord. And when I'd bump into people who were my classmates, I said, well, when are you opening your own restaurants? And it just wasn't happening. But in 1983, I was uh, in pretty good shape and I ran the New York Marathon. And when I was jogging, I saw Lower Manhattan. And one day, business opportunities, New York Times, 1,500 square feet for $1,500 a month, lower Manhattan. I ran down there. I took a look at it, and I said, I can do this. So I took, and and then, by the way, all the people, all the people, when you decide what you're going to do, will invest. You go to those people, and they don't invest. So I had absolutely no investors. I took $50,000 of my own money, $50,000 of a classmate's money. And uh, Ronald Reagan was our president, and he was giving SBA loans, Small Business Administration loans. And with $150,000 on a sleepy block in Lower Manhattan, Tribeca, which is like going to Brooklyn now, I guess. I
5: was going to say, um, it's just the changing, yeah, changing Neighborhoods it's ridiculous.
15: panel. Ridiculous. But anyway, I, I opened this place with a little-known chef named David Boulay. Boulay! And he was a pain in the ass. I mean, it was unbelievable. But, I mean, the food, his food was unbelievable. I mean, this is 35 years ago. And that food is as good as anybody's cooking today. And anyway, seven weeks, seven weeks after we opened, we got three stars from the New York Times. And let me explain something, it doesn't matter all of you restaurateurs, chefs in the audience, nothing will ever surpass that moment. It was an out-of-body experience. Why? I was charging $16 for three courses, one six. So the phone never stopped ringing. Literally, you could not get up to go to the toilet. The phone never stopped ringing and um, that restaurant, Mont-Rochet, uh went 22 years. It's so it was amazing. And then just the one thing, Sherry, is that, uh, you know, uh, that restaurant, uh, we have a restaurant called Cortone that took place after that in the same space. I it. And I took out 30 seats. I moved the kitchen all the way to the back. I created the most unbelievable 60 seat restaurant for another great chef, Paulie Brandt. And we got three stars again. And we got two michelin stars the only thing we didn't have were customers we had no customers and then you know it's oh, i had to close but five years with paul lebran was like 100 dog years but he moved to brooklyn that worked out really well but anyway and then we opened batard which again got three stars marcus Clark is a wonderful human being and we're still there and now the total sum of the years is 35 years so uh, it's pretty amazing.
5: Yes, certainly, certainly, extremely amazing. Um, so, how do you? I mean, you, you went on to open forty restaurants in thirty-two years. How do you decide? I guess what 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 you want what you want to do, and how has consumer trends or over the years changed maybe your decisions? It's not.
15: It's really not consumer trends. It, it, you know, I grew up and Joe Baum. Restaurant Associates, Windows on the World, Rainbow Room. They were constantly creating concepts. You know, New York, I had worked in a lot of restaurants. And probably the most important reason for my success was how poorly I saw how restaurants were run, how poorly they treated their help. And so I just was like, I'm going to do this better. I'm just going to raise the bar and... Better food, better service, be nice. I have no enemies, except Rita Germain. But I have no, I have no, I have no enemies. I, I, when I think back on my career, I, I, I sometimes think like, well, how come I haven't been sued or got caught up in the Me Too or any of this stuff? And I, I guess, you know, um, that, that's, that's the theory. But l- let me explain that when I was doing this, what I feel most amazing about was you could make money in the restaurant business. And I'm not sure you can make money in the restaurant business now unless you're Roberta's a Missy. Because those are incredible. Look, in 1994, you know, keep in mind, Robert De Niro, I opened Tribeca Grill in 1990. We didn't get the three stars. But we're there 30 years. This year is 30 years. And then Robert De Niro, in a, in a moment of terrible casting, introduces me to Nobu Matsuisa to be the chef at Tribeca Grill. I was like, we're not opening a Japanese restaurant. But I saw that friendship between De Niro and Nobu. And in 1994, we opened Nobu in Tribeca. And guess what? 25 years later, there are 50 Nobus around the world. There's Nobu under a manhole cover.
5: And I mean, it's unbelievable. I've been to the one in Doha. She's been, I Last have Last year been. on my way back from Bali, I had a layover. And You've been there. I, it was, I mean, I think back, did that really happen? But yes, I had your black cod lettuce wraps um, around nice. the world, See, pretty amazing. Let me,
15: let me explain that when we set out, we were going to reinvent the wheel, you know, the chicken dish that was served, you know, down the block, we, could, we couldn't serve that chicken dish. And, you know, there were so many similarities in the French restaurants. The French dominated everything. We were all, like, inspired by the French restaurants. But basically, um, we were trying to be creative, and we were trying to refine food. And uh, the journalists at that time, there were a handful that sort of elevated you. J.J. said something he was wrong about. The media is essential. If you're in Harlem, in the middle of no place, you need somebody to talk about you. I was in Tribeca. We needed people to talk about us. I lived it, I felt it. And in each case, it's not that you play to the media, but I'm in Tribeca, and let me explain something. As much as I heard Sean talk about his community, Tribeca has never supported us. If we weren't destination, and how do you become destination? You have to be that good. You have to offer something to people that's that good. But it wasn't about the brand. It was about doing different things. So I was opening Centrico with Aaron Sanchez. I was opening Leila, a Middle Eastern restaurant. I went to San Francisco. It's like a communist country. San Francisco. I was there for 14 years. I didn't make one dollar. But I smoked a lot of weed. But no. uh, But... But 14 years, I was in the wine country. Stuart Brioza, our last chef, has state bird provisions, probably the most famous restaurant in San Francisco to day. So I was living out my dream to actualize and to do all these different things. And meanwhile, I didn't even realize that if he just did 50 no that was the way to make money in the restaurant business.
5: So what's your advice for future restaurateurs?
15: Stay out. <laughs> Don't do it.
5: No, I mean, I feel very
15: bad because... Uh, You know, this was, you have to understand, I paid $12 a foot. Somebody asked me, they said, how much is a foot, a square foot in New York? I said, Start with 100 and go up. I paid $12. You know, I sat with my father in restaurants where we were the only ones. And and the owner would cook in the day and work the floor at night. And there'd be like no customers, but they could stay in business because the rent was like $50 a day. I mean, when I opened Moriche, my rent was fifteen hundred. That's fifty dollars a day. Today, you know, and and you're all young people, but you know, they 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 say, well, the rent's going to be half a million dollars, and like the numbers don't lie. So whatever you do, if you think you want to be in the restaurant business, and you want to build a restaurant for at a minimum a million dollars plus, and then you want to pay three hundred to five hundred, God knows how much more. It's just the numbers don't lie. So sit down and work the numbers. And if the numbers tell you that this thing ain't going to make a buck, it ain't going to make a buck. We made money three ways. Labor was cheap. Food was cheap. Rent was cheap. Guess what, everybody? None of that's cheap anymore. So the smartest guy is John George von Gerichten. Because if you read these articles in the New York Times, what does John George do? He gets paid. 5% Five percent of gross, seven percent of gross, ten percent of gross. Steve Wynn came to us, said, "I'm going to open a place called the Bellagio. I'll pay you five percent of gross." A lot of people made that deal. Guess what? They don't make that deal anymore. They don't. They, they don't want to pay you. They want the real estate people. I'm sorry if there are people in the audience that are real estate people, but and I'm sure there are. But the real estate people want to get the motherfucking money out of your pockets. That's all they care about. And, you know, they used to say to me, "Um, market rent is now $70 a foot. I said, why? Oh, because the guy across the street is paying that. So the biggest schmuck who pays the highest rent now sets the bar that we're we're all supposed to be schmucks like that.
5: So... I don't get it, but... The, the future so part well. of this panel. Do you, do you plan to oh, open, do you open? Do you open? Do you plan to open more restaurants? Would you like to? And, and what, what would they be?
15: Well, first of all, a few years ago, I used to say uh, I would have had forty more restaurants if the rent was more reasonable. I don't even make that comment anymore. I, I, I mean, I have dozens of ideas. Who amongst you can say they're in Madison Square Garden every day? making hamburgers for over 1,000 people a night after working at a McDonald's. And by the way, when Madison Square Garden said, you're going to do the hamburgers, I said, no way. I don't want to make a hamburger. Danny Meyer, the king of the hamburger. I don't want to compete with that. But then they called me back, and they said, yeah, you're going to make hamburgers. So I said, well, I'm going to think this through. And I broke it down. And by the way, I'm not a chef. I'm a restaurateur. Did you hear that sound just now? Dinosaur? So because like the chefs don't listen to us anymore. But the reality is quality, and not just you thinking it's quality, it's gotta be delicious. It's gotta be sensational. It's gotta be different. And everything that we've done, and and, and in the future, you know, like if somebody presents something, there are young people who've come to me and they've said, I wanna do this, I wanna do that. Nothing supplants talent. And it's talent is the, the, the people who are the most talented, they're very, very few. And the problem right now is that the, you know, because everything's gone up in, in price, is that, you know, for instance, fine dining is out the window. Unless you want to pay $350 at 11 Madison Park. I mean, $350? It's crazy. It's crazy what people have to charge now. So the future for me is, you know, we used to joke. Uh, Marty and I are partners. Marty Shapiro and I are partners for 30 years. Uh, Gray Sand talked about uh, 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 Will Gadara and Daniel Hum. I couldn't believe that relationship. I was so enthralled with that relationship because at the Welcome Conference, Daniel Hum would get up there and he would tell the front house people, how important you are. I was like, this is, this is unbelievable. And then it fell apart. And we don't know why. We're part of this 30 years. That's more important to me than opening a new restaurant. 30 years, it's most important that you're custodial and you take care of uh, the staff that have been loyal to you. You have to re- reciprocate. Yeah,
11: it's we have three minutes
15: and 37 seconds.
5: All right. Well, I want to, we, we have to, we're going to play my speed round, but that's going to. But I want to tell be... you,
15: you know, I did Sherry's radio thing, and I had, I just had a stroke. I, I, I had a stroke uh, two years ago, and it went very well, but it was literally right after the stroke, so I didn't know how much I, I would, uh, you know, be able to, you know, how lucid I would be. And then she asked me one question, and I swear to God, it just like totally blanked. So I hope I don't blank on, on these questions.
5: I didn't even notice. Yeah. What, before we play the speed round, just the overall theme of this this conference is all in. Right, I'm all in. Okay. Did you notice? Perfect. Short, short answer. That's what I wanted. Okay. I'm all in. You're all in. Totally. I was gonna say what it means to you, but it just. You're just. No, you know, I,
15: I've I immersed myself in the industry. I, I I did I, I, pretty much actualized a lot of my dreams, and now I'm at a stage in my life where I look back on it, and I'm happy to have what I have. Look, Nobu is the most successful single entity, probably in the history of restaurants. I mean, it's ridiculous. Last night, 500 covers up on 57th Street, 500 covers downtown, $100 average check. That's $100,000 every day. Nothing supplants that. You can't, you can't, you're not going to do better.
5: It's a fabulous restaurant. done well uh, (laughs) okay so on my show I play a speed round game where I ask my guests uh, I give them a choice between two things either or and they get to pick their preference I have five new ones for you because I wasn't going to make this so easy I'll be fast so there's no right or wrong but you just uh, pick your preference okay so here we go Big Mac or Whopper Whopper I don't know. I thought you. Were no, going I like to the away. I like the Impossible Whopper. By okay, the way. okay. Working the dining room floor or being a guest in the dining room. Working
15: the dining room floor.
5: Mets or Yankees? Both.
15: <laughs> now, just real quick, I have a restaurant at Citi Field. Yeah. Because my brother is a sick Mets fan. But obviously, I love the Yankees
5: the godfather 2, goodfellas or the irishman
15: oh my god godfather 2
5: <laughs> you talking to me <laughs> last one is i don't godfather. think i've I, 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 have Go you ahead.
15: have you finished watching the irishman i'm still gonna...
5: i haven't started you know, i haven't started like, i've been preparing when he, when for he's a kicking, conference when he's
15: kicking the guy he looks like a 90 year old person <laughs> kicking the like, uh, that's what i saw anyway Every, by the way, Robert De Niro puts all his friends in movies except me. I'm the only person who's never been. But, but, but I was in a movie called Eat This New York, which in 2004 talked about how stupid people from Minneapolis decided to open a restaurant in Brooklyn. That was the, the whole documentary. And then they went to Danny Meyer and Daniel Balut and me to tell them how stupid they were.
5: Last one, buffet or family-style lunch?
15: Well, I used to like all you could eat, but I'll say family, I'll say family style lunch.
5: That's the game. That's our segue into lunch that we're going to be having soon. Thank you.
15: Thank you everybody.
5: Thank you for tuning into this special episode of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network, covering Host Summit Plus Social, which took place on Monday, January 27th, 2020, at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Many thanks to my fabulous team, our fantastic panelists and partners, and everyone who joined us for our live event. It was truly a special day. Thanks to the Heritage Radio Network team for their amazing support, including Katie Mossman-Wadler, Kat Johnson, Hannah Forden, Dylan Heuer, and Amanda Wang. For more information about HOST, please go to allintheindustry.com and stay tuned for our upcoming video coverage from the event. On social media, follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. Our hashtag is Host Summit Social and Host 2020. Check out my Facebook page at All in the Industry and other websites BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Next week, we will have part two of our host coverage. I hope you'll tune in then. I'm Sherry Bayer. Thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. (laughs)